Well, it's my uh, humble privilege to introduce someone to you that many of you know very well. And some of you, perhaps, who have come in the last couple of years haven't been introduced to uh, Pastor John Hun, but he was the pastor, senior pastor who was here preceding our coming. And I am so um, gratified to have him in our pulpit this morning. Um, John and I have had some fellowship as he's been up here fishing um, and other times, but recently he texted me and said, hey, I'm going to be up here leading a, a Bible studies at Solid Rock for a basketball camp, and he would be open to preaching because I've invited him to come and preach when he's been up here. And so this time it clicked and worked, and we are just thankful to have John here. His son Zimmer is here in the audience as well. Hey, nice to meet you. I haven't met you yet, but anyway, good to have you here this morning. And uh, let me just list off the other children uh, and as well uh, acknowledge Alexis. She's at home, I believe, in Lebanon, Tennessee, holding down the fort. And they are, John and Alexis are looking at um, 22 years of marriage coming up this August on August the 3rd. So we'll have to note that on Facebook communication. But um, that is a, a wonderful blessing as well. They have Zachary, who is second year student at University of Tennessee, so close to home. And then Zimmer, you're here with us, a senior uh, next week at Lebanon High School. And then Stephanie, um, their daughter, will be a freshman, and Zebedee um, will be starting seventh grade. So that's just a generic report with their family. They are growing up and uh, growing in the Lord, as I hear. And uh, John has most recently been pastoring as a co-pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. And he is uh, ministering the word of God faithfully there as he did here for seven years from 2001 to 2008. And then you've been there for a few years um, preaching the word of God and also has continued to do missions work with uh, leadership international leadership resources international lri we support bill mills who is sort of the head of that ministry and many of you are exposed to it but let me just say that is a very very important ministry in missions because their approach uh, philosophically connects very well with the word of god i mean their their version of missions is to send pastors from here or abroad to go into places that need training and so John is one of those pastors who goes and sits in a living room or a relaxed setting and teaches pastors and teachers how to communicate the word of God, 2 Timothy 2.2 style, passing on the word of God to faithful men so that they'll pass it on to others. And it's an indigenous, wow, that's a word that I have to practice, indigenous ministry reaching people who are already part of the culture's there around the world so that's why we support it and we're so thankful to have John here. John has recently been to places like Peru, Kenya, Africa and Ecuador is coming in 2013 in terms of his ministry through LRI and for a long time has ministered to the Kazakhstan pastors there. So John thank you for coming, thank you for your um, loving and gracious encouragement to me. One thing personally that John did for me when I came here is he uh, had his church in Tennessee praying for me and Judy and our kids through the transition. And that meant so much to me. I received several notes, just fistfuls of notes through the mail that were personally handwritten from congregation members down in Tennessee. And they were praying for us and praying for our church. And it was just a great way to knit our hearts together in love. So with that as a, a launch, John, come up and minister the word of God to us. It's very good to be back here with you and with friends. 
Zimmer is my second son, and this has really been a senior trip for him. And I want to say, as you're turning to Acts 16, please turn there in your Bibles, but I want to say one thing, many things I could say, but really one thing that stands out to me from my seven years here, and that is thank you for giving my family uh, a great seven years. I hear from pastors all over the country that talk about how difficult churches are on their families, and my family has nothing but wonderful thoughts of Anchorage Grace and Grace Christian and the community, and so thank you for that. Uh, they uh, love it, and uh, Lexa sneaks up every once in a while, and she promised she'd come next year and bring all the kids, and so I know you'd rather see her than me, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Spreading the gospel, let's talk about that. This is a prelude to the church at Philippi. How did the church of Philippi get started? Let me maybe back up and say, the church of Philippi is maybe the strongest church in the New Testament. There are others that could rival it, but there are a few churches that stand out, leap off the pages of Scripture, and Philippi is one of those churches. Great churches, though, don't happen accidentally. Great churches don't pop out of the sky or grow from heaven. Daryl, I saw your parents at the first service, and I couldn't help but think about them. They were here in the very beginning of this church. And they could tell stories that none of us know about. The suffering, sacrifice, and faith, wondering how we're going to make it the next Sunday or the next month or whatever. Great faith, great sacrifice, and really, in a word, great maturity. I've been studying Philippians for about four months. It's the next book that I am training the Kazakh pastors with. If you can't say Kazakhstan, that's okay. I'm on my 15th trip, and my father-in-law, who just moved, uh, to town. My wife is thrilled about that, so it gives me a little more freedom of travel. But he still can't uh, call it Kazakhstan. He calls it Crackerstan. So I don't really care what you call it as long as you pray for us and pray for them. Um, but what I, what I really want to do is talk about how to be a mature Christian, how to be a hardy Christian. Uh, I could call this sermon How to Pray for Missionaries Who Plant Churches. So how did the church at Philippi get started? That's what I'm going to talk about today on Paul's second missionary journey. And how, once a church is started, Pastor Jeff told me that he'll be preaching in Philippi, uh, Philippi. He'll be preaching in Anchorage on the Philippian church in the fall. So you're going to get both spectrums. How does a church get started? How does a healthy church get started? And how does a healthy church get healthier? So you're going to hear about that. You're going to learn about that. I hope it's exciting for you. And let's just jump right in. My introduction was too long, the first service. I want to spend more time in the text. Acts 16, let's, um, let, me, let me say this as we open this page. You've got to know where you are when you open up chapter 16. You've got to know that chapter 15 is absolutely uh, a hinge point of the book of Acts. In chapter 15, there are two uh, major conflicts. Major conflicts. By the way, uh, healthy churches don't have perfect leadership. Healthy churches don't have perfect membership. Healthy churches don't have an absence of conflict. Those three things are not essential for a healthy church. If you're going to work for God, you're going to have conflict. And you don't have to have perfect, perfect leaders and perfect members, but you do need to have maturing leaders and maturing members. That's the New Testament. So I say all that to say in chapter 15, we have this great conflict in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, right? If you know what happened there, there was a question about the gospel being tainted uh, and Paul stops what he's doing on his work. Peter stops what he's doing. 
James, the brother of Jesus, stops what he's doing. They all come to Jerusalem to stop a, an error coming into the gospel. They were teaching, the Jews were teaching, that you, to be saved, you must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you must be baptized or circumcised uh, uh, like Moses taught. And when the gospel gets tainted or challenged, something's got to stop. That is a fight worth fighting for. Amen? Amen? You were a little bit better than the first crowd. They weren't much amen. Jude says, there's times you have to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And the church today, it's not conflict that's the problem. It's what we're in conflict about that's the problem. We need to fight for the gospel. We need to fight for the right things. And they could not move forward in their work without making sure this false gospel was nipped in the bud. It was a huge issue. You can hear it in the text of Acts 15 where Peter gets up and he is all over them. He is railing on them. If there was a table, he might have got on top of it and declared to them, this can't happen. Oh, that the church today would fight for the gospel more and fight for other things less. So once the dust settles on that and the gospel is safe and secure again, now we're getting ready to start our second missionary journey, and everything's going to be great, and Paul, the great apostle, and the great Christian, and the great missionary, has a conflict with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Everybody can get along with Barnabas, right? Everybody can get along with Paul. They have a conflict, and it's such a bad conflict. One translation says they had such a sharp disagreement that they had to part ways. A breakup of the leadership team and they haven't, they've only finished one missionary journey. That's where we open the pages to. John Mark, Paul said he deserted us. He's not ready. He's not mature. I'm not babysitting him. I'm not watching him. Barnabas, you want him, you can have him. I'll get somebody else. I'm leaving. And that's what happened. Paul took Silas. And on they went. By the way, I didn't say this first service, but if you ever have conflict with anybody, uh, you have, you have uh, no right to leave that conflict undealt with until you breathe your last breath. God has a way of dealing with conflict, a biblical way of dealing with conflict, and God's people need to start doing conflict resolution His way. And Paul sets the great example because before, uh, before we get out of the New Testament, he and John Mark are good again. It is not acceptable to be in conflict. Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can't force others to be at peace, but mature Christians are always looking to reconcile past conflicts. We don't, we don't write anybody off or chalk those things as finished. Amen? Okay. Well, those are the conflicts. That's what we're launching into. Anything but an ideal situation. I think an immature team would have said, there's too much conflict. We can't move the gospel forward. That's not what happened then. And thankfully, that's not what happens now. Let's look at this first point. Being prepared or being mature, having a life of faith, living a life of faith. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And the absence of being called a believer leads us to the understanding he wasn't a believer. So Timothy had a believing mother and an unbelieving father. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He had a godly reputation. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. 
Now I want you to stop right there. Some people would think that Paul is just a guy that wants to work alone, wants to get all the glory, wants to get all the credit, and there are leaders like that, plenty of leaders like that. Paul was not one of those leaders. Paul didn't want to go with John Mark, but he's already picking somebody else up. He's always looking to add to the team. He's always looking to equip people. He wants more people on mission, not less. And if you look at the end of Colossians 4, he mentions 11, I think 10 or 11 believers, men and women, who have contributed to his team and his work. At the end of Romans 16, at the very end, he mentions over 30 believers, men and women, who are contributing to the work. We might remember Paul more than anybody else, but he did not work alone. Paul was always trying to equip and mature the believers. But Timothy was more mature than John Mark. Paul liked what he heard about him, and he wanted to take him with him. And it says in verse 3, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened... Strong churches don't stay strong naturally. They have to be strengthened. They have to continually be strengthened. That's what the ministry of the Word does. That's the primary ministry of the Word, to keep you strong. To keep you strong, to make sure you don't stay in the same place or get stagnant. But also, you know what else encourages a church or strengthens a church? Fellowship. Paul showing up again. I've been so encouraged last night at an open house and this morning, just seeing you again, seeing Kevin and... Fred Meyer, just seeing you guys, it's, it does something. It strengthens us, doesn't it, when we see each other and it just stirs up that great family relationship we have in the body of Christ. And Paul did that. He spread the word and he embraced people. Paul was not some kind of guy that you put in the back room. He loved people. He was a great shepherd and a great teacher. The church was strengthened because they came there and they were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. God was blessing that early church. Live a life of faith. Do you have the same reputation that Timothy has? Do others speak of your godly reputation? For him, he had a legacy of faith. We know that his grandmother and mother are given great credit for him growing up in the faith. From infancy, he was taught the Holy Scriptures. That's all he knew, 2 Timothy tells us. And he was taught the Bible, knew about the Bible, and his life was a contrast in 2 Timothy 3, to how all these other people were living. He had the right upbringing, he had a godly reputation, and that's where it all started. By the way, he didn't know Paul was coming into town. Paul didn't know he was going to meet him. He meets him, but one thing I love about Timothy, when God calls him to be on mission, he is ready. I love that. He's ready. He's ready for whatever God calls him to be, and if you don't know what God wants you to do, keep getting yourself ready. Because He wants you on mission. He wants you to do something. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. And don't wait on God to show you what it is to get ready. He was ready. He was, able, he was willing to leave home so willingly. And Paul was living with such urgency because they were both mature, maturing believers, hardy Christians who could handle the difficulties of spreading the gospel in a fallen, evil world. A world, whether you want to believe it or not, that hates God and hates his son. If you don't think that, you're just not getting out enough. They do. Look at this second point, 6 through 10. Going anywhere to spread the gospel. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, 
having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to uh, Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Troas is a port city. It's the greatest, biggest port city in the region. And when you go there, what you're really doing, it'd be like going to the Anchorage airport. You know God wants you to go somewhere. You don't know where He wants you to go. So you go to the airport, and when God tells you where to go, you hop on a plane and get there. But you're there waiting to go. That's what Troas was for Paul. By the way, I don't know how he knew the Holy Spirit's uh, direction in this. Don't go to Asia. Spirit of Jesus, don't go that way. We know that he led him out of Asia into, into Europe for that uh, gospel to get into Europe, but I don't know how he knew that. And I told the last uh, service that Jeff would explain all that to you <laughs> next week. Clean up my mess. Appreciate that, Jeff. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, strong word, urging him, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, I love that urgency, once you know what God wants you to do, there is nothing to wait on. We sought to go into Macedonia, listen to this phraseology, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. That is the conclusion of every great commission Christian. When God opens a door, let me tell you, I can tell you right now, when He opens a door, he, he wants you to preach the gospel. He wants you to share the gospel. He wants that to be a natural flow of your life because you can get into places that Pastor Jeff and I can't go. Some people think we have some kind of magic evangelistic words. We don't. Some people don't want to hear from the professional Christians, from the pastoral. You have more access and you have more respectability in some places than we have. Thus God scattered us all over to do what we need to do. To go anywhere, even right here in Anchorage, to, to share the gospel, to do that. What a great conclusion. That's what a healthy Christian always concludes uh, when God speaks to him. Look at this third point. Being prepared to make disciples. I mean, that is the Great Commission, right? That is sort of how Jesus wound it up. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them. Mark them out. Mark them out. Uh, Jesus went public for you. And you ought to go public for Him. Baptism is simply the ceremony by which you are declaring what has already happened to you through Christ. And the early church, uh, I believe the early church didn't take serious any Christian who refused to go public with his faith. And I don't understand it today. I've had people say to me, Pastor Jeff, uh, you don't understand. I get my hair done every Saturday, ready for Sunday. I can't be baptized. I don't think they really understand what Jesus did for them. And to all you ladies, I say, I apologize for not understanding how important getting your hair done is. And I don't. I'll confess that up front. But I would say this, too, in, a, in an exaggerated way. I think you'd walk through glass to be baptized if you really understood what he did for you. I think you'd be baptized if it cost you your life, if you really understood what he did for you. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's got to be, that's right up there. The purpose of the church is to glorify God, but the mission of the church is to get His Word out and to get the Gospel out. Jesus said He was going to save people. 2 Peter 3, 15, consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation. I can tell you why Jesus has not come back yet. He's going to save more people. That's what it says. He is going to save more people. Doesn't that give you confidence? When He comes back, nobody else is going to be saved. But while He's waiting, there are ripe fruit to be picked. So let's go get it. 
A lot of ripe fruit right here in the shadows of this church. And I'm excited for you. I'm, I really hope, I think that, I really hope that your best days are ahead of you. I believe that they are and there's no reason they shouldn't be. Your best days. And that's what I hope from being here before. I have no desire for my days to be the best days. That would, be, you, that would mean you're going backwards. So may you mature, may you move forward and put more information on your prayer chain so I know more what's going on. I want more information. Well, here we go. That's where they went. Verse 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and, the, and that's sort of a halfway point, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. God didn't say go to Philippi. He said go to Macedonia in the vision. But Paul's concluding again, I'm going to the big city, the major city, to make a major impact. That's where I'm going to start. That's what he did. We remained in this city for some days, and he learned a little bit about where people might be. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate, outside the city, to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, I love this principle. By the way, it only takes ten men to have a... Uh, official gathering for uh, synagogue teaching and there weren't 10 in and this is a city of a mega city bigger than any city in Alaska maybe bigger than any city in Tennessee Tennessee really doesn't have big cities this was a big big city but there aren't 10 men to be found who are meeting in a synagogue going over the Torah or going over uh, worship to the God of heaven where are the men we don't know where they are then and I can be honest with you I don't know where they are now your church and the churches around the world are going to rise or fall to a great extent based on the men rising up to their God-given position. And men are absent all over the world today. In Russia, Kazakhstan, Peru, Ecuador, the men are AWOL. They're not there. Women have been so faithful over time, so faithful. Timothy's own testimony, what, what got Timothy ready? His grandmother and his mother. Thank you, ladies, for your faithfulness. Men, don't be mad at me because you're here, so I'm not talking about you. But maybe I am. I don't know if you're rising up to God's called place for you or not, but you are critical. You are critical. We need you. God wants you. We need you, and your, and, and your wives are going to really appreciate you uh, as you rise up to that position too. Right, ladies? So there they go, and they go outside there, and they see some ladies at a place of prayer. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And she was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, that, and her household as well, she urged us, strong word again used, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, already she's saying that, come to my house and stay. And she, I love this, you ladies are, some of you are great prevailers. And she prevailed upon us. That's a persuasive lady. She prevailed. She wasn't taking no for an answer. You're my new brothers. I just came to Christ. We have reason to celebrate. Don't you love that? I love that. Reminds me a little bit about Matthew. You know Matthew, uh, the, the tax collector. When he was saved, if you follow that calling that Jesus calls him, right after that there's a gathering at Matthew's house. And what it appears that he is doing is he's having a party. Okay, Christians can have parties too. He's having a party. Ready for this? Where he's inviting his old friends to meet his new master. That is so cool. That's what Matthew does. And Lydia's bringing him home. 
There's no shame. He wants people to know, I've met Jesus. I've met the greatest person on the planet. I've met the Redeemer, the Savior, and I want you to meet Him too. That is natural and that is normal. And to not share Christ as a Christian is absolutely strange to the New Testament. Strange. And leaving it up to the preachers is not going to get it done. It's not going to happen. Don't you love this? Did you, did you hear that phrase, those two verses merging together that might seem a little bit odd? She was a worshiper of God, but the Lord had to open her heart. She worshiped what she knew. She had the right God, but she didn't know enough to be saved. And God sent to this woman somebody who would take her the final step of salvation. You know, we live in a country that unlike Lydia, worships anything and everything. And I think the church, to a great extent, says, well, they're already worshiping something. We need to let them go. Don't let them go. There's a lot of worshipers filling congregations all around the, the America full of people who don't know Jesus. It's tragic. I don't find any joy in that. I don't find any glee in that. I wish it wasn't that way. But we need to learn from God's Word that God brings people the gospel witness so that they aren't left hanging in some kind of uncertainty about their salvation. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8 that God supernaturally picked up Philip, put him on the path that the Ethiopian eunuch was on? The eunuch is heading back home after being there. And what, what's the Ethiopian eunuch reading? Is he reading John Grisham? Is he reading Tundra? Zimmer, my scholar, uh, the one thing that I knew Zimmer would love, I bought him the Tundra. Uh, and, and I couldn't wait to give it to him, so I already gave it to him. He wasn't reading Tundra, the eunuch. He wasn't reading John Grisham. He, he was reading from Isaiah the gospel message. We'll say, Philip might go, well, why am I wasting my time here? He's there. I need to go somewhere where people don't have a Bible. No, he still didn't understand the full gospel. But God is at work. See, God is preparing people to be saved. And he's sending people to those people to finish the work. I mean, it's great. It is awesome what's going on here. This disciple making is so powerful. And by the way, you ought to be making disciples, every one of you. And you know when you stop making a disciple? when that disciple can start making disciples. If they can't make a disciple, you keep working with them till they can. Now Jesus put three years into his men. He didn't trust them to be able to make disciples for three years. Are you willing to put that kind of commitment in with one another? That will be a great key on the strength and the future health of this fellowship, this fellowship that God planted. Oh, I think that's amazing. I think that's so amazing that God... You know how many people that I have saved in 27 years of pastoral ministry? Same amount that you have. You know how many people I've opened their heart to believe? None. I've opened nobody's mind, nobody's heart. I've not drawn anybody. I've not, not convicted them of their sin. I've not, I can't do any of those things. That's not my role. My role is just be faithful in preaching the word and living it out. And, when we, and I say that to encourage you. Don't have this kind of pressure that you need some kind of right response for you to be effective or, or successful. I don't like that word. Really, it's the word faithful. And, 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 and being faithful is all God requires of us. But you know what? Immature Christians, when they start sharing their faith and people reject them, they stop sharing their faith because they're discouraged. And you can't do that. You, you, you don't know who God's going to, to bring to fruition but we've got, to, we've got to be willing to uh, let people say no to us and keep me moving forward. Philip went to the eunuch. Peter went to Cornelius. And I didn't even say that one. Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10. I mean, same situation. 
and Paul to Lydia. It's very beautiful. Well, there is a, a problem. There is opposition that's going to take place, and we shouldn't be uh, surprised by that. Let's pick it up in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling, that is, financial gain. She followed Paul and us, crying out very loud, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this is strange to me, because if I were uh, teaching somebody how to do evangelism, I might give you this exact phraseology. The words are perfect. But Satan was using this girl, screaming, uh, crying out, and she did it days after days after days. And this girl, who sounded like she had a good message, was actually uh, Satan's tool to distract what was going on in God's work. Amazing to me. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. That's in the Bible, being annoyed. It's amazing. I had a teenager ask me, uh, after preaching this four months ago, starting it, please tell me, I think he was kidding, please tell me being, anno being annoying is not a sign of being demon-possessed. I said, no, no, it's not, hopefully. It's, it's not her annoyance. It was Paul finally recognized this was not a good thing. I don't know how he did it. There was a great apostolic uh, gift given to Paul that we thank God for, and he doesn't have to keep showing us those gifts. He showed us he can do it. We have confidence that it's been done. And we, we're building on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. We don't need the same gifts that they had then. We're not lacking any gifts to getting the Great Commission finished. He was annoyed. He turned and said to the Spirit, not to the girl, to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's all he said. That's all he said. You can find books today that would give you all kinds of recipes for exorcism. You have all these books on how to defeat the demons and the right way to talk to them. You have no business, you have no, no good reason to talk to the devil almost ever. You simply cannot find scriptural uh, uh, cases where people are having some kind of dialogue with the devil. Don't do that. Even Michael the archangel, I think it's Jude, when he's arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, who knows what the devil wanted to do with that, make it probably an idol to be worshipped, but they're arguing, and a, a, a great holy warring angel, Michael, is arguing with Lucifer, the falling angel, and all that Michael would say in that conflict was this, the Lord rebuke you. That's it. And in both cases, it's the power of the Lord that will give you victory and give you safety in your mission. Don't fall for this kind of trap that you need to dialogue with the devil and do all this and bind him. If you're, if all these people that are binding him, with what, rubber bands? He's getting loose pretty quick from all this. Bind. He doesn't need to be bound. He is already bound under the providential hand of God. And I love it, and I'm encouraged that even Satan is used for God's purposes, whether it's Job or whether it's Peter being sifted, amazing stuff that's going on. Satan, Satan's opposition is no good reason for the church to not move forward in faith and in victory. Jesus said himself, the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell can't prevail. You know what those are words of? Those are offensive words. Offensive words. It's not the devil storming our gates, it's... Us storming his gates, right? The gates of hell.
We are going, that's what evangelism really is. It's going to the pit of hell, taking back captives that have been held captive by their sin. And that's what the great war is, giving God the glory once you are saved and winning others to Christ after that. That's the great battle that we're facing. And again, this is how you, this is how you should live with these principles. This is how you should pray for others. All right, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, listen to the, what's true and what's not true about the, their report. These men are Jews. Now, Luke isn't mentioned here, even though in verse 10, Luke joins, Dr. Luke joins the team. In verse 10, Luke is the writer of Acts. Uh, Acts and the book of Luke's and he, he changes the personal pronouns in 1610 so a doctor's on the trip Dr. Luke and Silas is on the trip we know he's with Paul and Timothy's on the trip but Timothy was a Jew and a Gentile but only the two Jews were arrested is it because they were the leaders of the team maybe is it because they were Jews definitely this world is a world that hates Jews and Jewish people and it's because they hate God Anti-Semitism is alive and well today, and it was alive and well then. So they just take those two, and they say, these men are Jews. That's true. And they are disturbing our city. That's not true. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That's debatable. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And safely doesn't mean safe for the prisoners. It means safe from escape. Having received this order, the jailer put them in the inner prison, that is where you put the worst criminals that you are most concerned about, and fastened their feet in the stocks. History tells us, the Bible doesn't go into this detail, History tells us that when your feet were in the stocks in the first century, they spread your legs out as far as they could go, and they chained you, that, chained you that way. It was not just that you were chained, but you were in the most uncomfortable position they could put you in. And for what? For sharing the gospel. Just for sharing the gospel, just for being faithful. Beaten, you know, every once in a while we hear about somebody in Singapore, an American or Canadian or whatever, with drugs, and what do they do? They get the cane out and start beating on them, and the world goes crazy. How wrong that is. Christians are beaten every day for their faith. The world doesn't care. They don't care. It's a double standard. That's, that's just the way it is. We don't have time to ponder that. We just keep moving on and, and be faithful. That's where they were. Beaten. I don't think we can imagine the, the pain that was inflicted, the pain that was felt, the knots on their head, the welts on their back. I, I don't even know. I don't know how much pain they inflicted, but they inflicted a bunch. I know they did. And how do you respond? By the way, the book of Philippians is a book about joy, primarily. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from a Roman prison, we think. And Paul is encouraging the church back there while I'm in prison, saying, guys, don't let anything rob you of your joy. That's maturity. Guys, you can have the peace that passes understanding, right? Philippians 4. You can have that peace. You know why so many Christians come into my office and Jeff's office and they talk to you? I'm going through this. Where's my joy? Why aren't people having joy? Why aren't people having peace? One reason. They're not maturing. They're not healthy Christians. And by the way, I don't have joy all the time. I don't have peace all the time. What's the answer to me? Same. I've got to keep maturing in my faith. I've got to keep uh, uh, growing in my faith. I've got to be a hardier Christian. I think sometimes, Jeff, I'm a little bit like uh, Elijah. 
who could stand up to 850 prophets of Baal, but one angry woman made him run. Jezebel. I'm not, this has nothing to do with women. All I'm saying is, is you, you, you can have the greatest victories for God and you make it through and now you're at your most vulnerable point. Satan comes and just blows on you and you fall right down. Happens to me all the time. Sometimes I get a little paranoid. You have a great victory. Some great things are happening. You start looking over your shoulder. Where, where, where is he at? Now what's he going to do? And, and a mature person doesn't have to look back. A mature person looks up and looks forward, which is Philippians chapter 3. Press on, move forward, look upward. You don't have answers inward, and you don't need to go backward. Let me say this really quickly. I'm almost done. I, I, I asked a question about a month or so ago, and I think Zimmer was, was there. I'm sure he was. And, and, I, and I just talked about, I was saved when I was 22, and, and um, a lot of guilt, shame from those years before that, before I came to Christ. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame, things that I'm not proud of, things that God saved me out of. And I just asked the question to, to the folks that day. I said, how many of you feel like you're bound by your past? Your past, you can't get over it, and your past is keeping you from moving forward in your faith. How many of you believe that that would be true? Half the people raised their hand really high. And we've got one doing it involuntarily now. I appreciate that. I wonder how many of you, how many of you, when, when you were recreated in Christ, some of you have a, a, you know, I want my kids to have a different testimony than mine. But when you were recreating Christ, do you really believe that he made you brand new? Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe that you were born again? You see, what's he trying to say? You hear the, you hear the language? That's done. That's over. It's not that it didn't happen. That's not the same guy. That's, that's the, I, I think about that guy, the 22, previous 22, and I feel sorry for him. It's like, who is that strange, pitiful man? John Hunt. And I tell you, one of the reasons the church can't move on today is because we're hanging on to that baggage. The, the cross of Jesus Christ has covered you. That's the gospel. That's why the gospel is so great. You can move on. If the whole world doesn't accept you, God still does. And I need that. I need to know that God still accepts me. All right. About midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were still feeling the bruises of the rods, still feeling the pain of the punishment. And what do they do? They pray, which I think I would do, but I think I would be a grumbling prayer. They start singing, singing hymns to God. If you don't understand that, and I don't understand, this is what maturity looks like right here. God's in charge. God's in control. I don't know how long we're going to be here, but we're going to be here a long, long time. Maybe it doesn't matter. They start singing hymns to God, and the songs weren't, please release us from prison. I guarantee it wasn't that. <laughs> hymns. It was not about them. The songs weren't about them. The songs were, God, you, you, wait a minute. You just got beat up. You just got beat up. Everything, you got falsely accused, and you're singing? How do you do that? You know what that says to the world? Something has happened to that person. Something's happened to a person that can sing in those circumstances. Wow. Man, that's what I want. Suddenly there was an earthquake, great earthquake. Foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not just Paul and Silas, everybody in the jail. Chains came off of all of them. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. 
suicide would be better than what Rome would do to him for, getting, for these prisoners getting out. So that's the natural response that he had. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Now, how did, Paul was a great leader. How did he get people that were in prison that had chains fall? How did he get them from leaving? Keep them from leaving? I don't know. But I love it. Somehow he said, hey, guys, we're not leaving. We're all staying here. And what really kills me, I love this about Paul. He's in prison all the time, and he doesn't ever try to escape. You ever notice that? And I think the reason he doesn't escape is because he understands that God's ways are not like his ways and that God will give him platforms, even in the worst circumstances, that he would have, that he wouldn't have had they not happened. Let me give you the perfect example. When he is saved in Acts chapter 9, it is stated to him, you will be my instrument and you will stand before kings. How many kings are going to take an appointment from a radical uh, former uh, Jew uh, not a former Jew, but a former Pharisee who's starting this new crazy movement. You think he'd get right in to see the king on that? I mean, if God wanted him to, he would. But what does God do? He has him arrested. And when he's arrested, he gets to stand before kings and governors. Felix, Festus, Agrippa. It's really incredible. That, see, God is engineering those circumstances. That's why you can sing. Instead of frown. Instead of fret. I'm a good fretter. You, you a good fretter? Do, do you guys fret up here? Fret, is it, we use that word. That's a word in the South that they brought back to my vocabulary, fretting, among other words. Zimmer talks funny. If you talk to Zimmer, you'll, know, you'll see he's been more influenced by the South. Paul is uh, looking out for the jailer. He cries out, don't harm him. We're all here. Verse 29, then the jailer called for the lights, rushed in i got to see this. He's got these open lights. And in trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Wow. Look what God did. Man, the man's falling down at the feet of the people he had just put in prison. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, that Peter sermon at, at Pentecost was interrupted by the very same words. They were convicted, pierced to the heart. I don't know what else Peter had to say, but I, I see that as an interruption of Peter's sermon. When the conviction is so... Wouldn't it be great if somebody stood up right now and said, Pastor John, Pastor Jeff, i got to tell you, I've been sitting here for several weeks, several months. I, what can I do to be saved? I can't sit here any longer. Jeff, would that be okay with you? Get the elders to take him in the back, explain all the ways of salvation, bring him out, and let you celebrate a new brother in Christ. That's what we're looking for. That's what we want. It doesn't always happen that way, but it does happen that way sometime. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. He is the Savior. He does save you from your sins, but a call to salvation is a call to submission. And it's a call to suffering, if need be. And, and I, I hope that you're past that argument of the 80s and 90s that I was, a, I became, I was saved in 1985, and I, but I let Jesus be my Lord in 19, uh, 2005. No, there's, there's, you, you can't break it up that way. That's not how the gospel works. If you don't understand at the moment of salvation that Jesus is the absolute ruler of your life, somebody didn't explain the gospel to you well enough. And in the book of Acts, two times, I think the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate something. In the book of Acts, two times, Jesus is called the Savior. 92 times, he's called the Lord. 
What's God trying to say in this transitional early book? This, this Savior, this Redeemer, He is the Lord of your life. When you come to Him, it's a call to absolute death to everything that you want. Your agenda, your desires, you come to me, that's how it is. And if you don't want to come that way, trust me, I can read the Bible. If you don't want to come that way, He'll let you walk away. He'll, it, without changing the conditions. He won't do, we do that. We try to sweeten the pot, don't we? The faith movement, Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know what that is? That's a faithless movement. They've got to sweeten the pot because who would come to Jesus without getting the goodies? It's insult to the gospel. It's terrible. We don't do that. We don't have to do that. We be faithful. We let God uh, do His work. And so they spoke the word of God to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once. He and his family marked himself out. He brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced. What a change from wanting to kill himself to having joy along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Instant joy. His life would never be the same. Matter of fact, it makes me wonder, Lydia and the jailer were two key components of that early church. I, I wonder how they end up working together and fellowshipping together and, and serving the Lord together. And I love that. I love that thought, just thinking about it. Amazing stuff. Verse 35, let's end this to the, to go this to the end of the chapter and we'll be done. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police and they said, let these men go. They realized they, they had a problem, and it tells why. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison, and now they want us to, to throw us out secretly? I'm not leaving. And see, I would do that too, but not for the same godly reasons as Paul. I've got to make a point here. I'm not going to get away with that. I didn't say, I didn't finish this first service, but I really believe what Paul is doing. I really believe this is, I'm having to speculate a little bit between the, between, in the white spaces, but I really believe that what God is, Paul is doing is he's, he's thanking God for that Roman citizenship, and in his, in his standing firm here, he is making, giving that room, giving that church a little bit of room. Uh, I think his, his decision helps the church in the long haul. But that's me, my speculation. That's not what the text tells us. It just tells us he wasn't going to leave. What they'd done was wrong. And whatever reasons beyond that, I'll let God reveal to you. He says, no, I'm not leaving. Let them come out themselves and let them take us out. We want an escort <laughs> out of town. Incredible. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And the magistrates were the judges. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They, they knew that they violated the law. And if Rome heard that they did this to Roman citizens, they would have to pay. They would be in trouble. Heads would roll. This was a serious crime uh, in the Roman Empire. So not only do they, are they afraid, they, it says that they came and apologized to them personally. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. They did escort them, and they said, you are leaving, right? And he did leave, but you know what? He could have done the, I guess, the Arnold Schwarzenegger famous claim, I'll be back. He came back. He left, and he came back. And what a phenomenal beginning that, that would turn into one of the greatest churches in the history of the New Testament. It's great. They went out of the prison, 
And they visited Lydia. Isn't that great? Lydia comes back in to the picture. And when they'd seen the brothers, when they'd fellowship with the body of Christ, they encouraged them, and then they left. Would you please bow your heads this morning? Father, thank you for this incredible picture of of what the, the, the Great Commission looks like. Not only then, but even now. As there are so many of our brothers and sisters in harm's way who have been beaten and even killed for their faith. And Lord, what is our role? Help us to know our role. And to some extent, we are investors in the kingdom. But, but I know this church well enough to know that we are not just investors in the kingdom. We are also participants in the kingdom. And I pray that there is no higher passion among those who are here, among those who call Anchor's Grace their home, no higher passion than to see your name spread in their neighborhood and at their office and at their school. Lord, I believe you're wrapping up time that we could be in this last generation. And I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that we would be healthy. I pray that we would be maturing Christians knowing we're not perfect, knowing the leadership's not perfect, knowing that there will be conflicts, but knowing that that cannot stop a church on mission, a mature church on mission. May, your best, may the best days of Anchorage Grace be in her future, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.